Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's great to be in front of you today, and I trust that your week has been good. Uh, numbers are going down, and it looks like we might be able to meet together, and although on a bit of a smaller scale, but keep alert to our social media as we find out more details this following week. So stay tuned. And today we begin part one of another four-part series entitled Failing Faith. And the last four weeks we kind of looked at hearing from God, and now we're examining when God appears to be absent in our time of need, so to speak. And so in our culture we often associate spiritual blessing with physical happiness. And when life becomes difficult, maybe it's through loss or it's through divorce or it's through depression or grief, it can often make Christians either feel like their faith is a fraud or lead them to believe that maybe God is the one who's a fraud. Then there are those who believe that uh, they have faith all figured out. And uh, what happens is after they watch a few friends or loved ones die, maybe they lose a job or two, uh, they see somebody diagnosed with cancer, or many times people find their faith failing during those times. And then somehow along the way, we have to ask, is it possible that maybe we've traded an ancient, powerful Christianity for a Christianity made in the image of success and well-being? Is it possible to find a richer, more meaningful faith that bears the weight of all of life's difficulties? I think there are many questions that sincere people ask all the time. Is God real? Does he really care? Is he even there? Is he there for me? Like, why God? Why? And I think one of the reasons for this is that most of us have experienced a heartache of some type. Most of us have been disappointed with this life. Most of us have been disillusioned one way or another. And I actually hope that this series will empower you to cultivate a faith that will withstand the inevitable troubles of life that come our way. And so to start today, I want to actually share my story. There are a few defining moments in my life where I felt as if my faith was failing. Uh, but first, before I even go there, I was actually really challenged in my first two years at seminary. Uh, with some things that I learned and some things that I saw and I experienced. Uh, because I, I, I actually spent two years in a charismatic institute. Now again, hear me very clearly, I align myself uh, as charismatic in my theology. Don't have an issue with that. But I have to admit, I saw some crazy stuff take place in the name of God. I also watched people argue about the stupidest things. Now I know we call that theology, but... Um, I had to deal with a question of how could God call these people who were so different from me and yet were all called to the same thing. And seriously, when I, when I take a step back, some of these folks were plain nuts. I'm just going to say it out there. But to be fair, I'm pretty sure that others felt the very same way about me. And on a side note, I was even told that I'd never make it in ministry. Anyway, I can't say that during this time my faith was failing. You know, you're talking about study and textual criticism and, and all this other stuff that you're learning, but I was definitely at that point in a serious questioning mode, which thankfully I made it through alive. 
And so after I graduated seminary, I went right into full-time ministry. I began to work with people. Now, if that doesn't challenge your faith in God, nothing will. But I worked as a youth pastor. So, you know, I was dealing with minor things. I was dealing with kids actually overdosing and suicide attempts and suicide completions. I was dealing with the effects of parents spitting, splitting up and divorce and its effects and mental illness and drunk drivers and alcohol issues and cutting and people dying for no reason or because of illness and random acts of violence on good people and the list goes on and on and on. And that was just in youth ministry. Then about 20 years ago in 2001, a young adult named Alana Fife, she came into my office and she shared what God was calling her to, uh, and, and said very clearly, look, God is calling me to go into missions. She was almost finished her university degree at the University of Winnipeg and I, I suggested that she finish what she started. We talked, we prayed, but she eventually felt this overwhelming call to Indonesia and she made plans to join a mission organization and to give one year of teaching in Indonesia before she would graduate. So in July of 2002, Alana and I ironically had the opportunity to fly together to Toronto as I was actually going to go speak at a youth camp and she was off for her training in the States prior to leaving for Indonesia. And we were just about to part ways. We were about to go to different gates and she gave me a little note. It was a thank you note. It told me about her story and, she, and again in that she was thanking me of, of uh, uh, my part of being in her story. So in Indonesia, she lived with a local Indonesian pastor and his family. She taught English to children in, in Christian schools and at a local mosque. And her emails were often filled with encouragement and even culture shock. I'll never forget, it was that morning, January 22nd, 2003. I got a phone call. I sat in disbelief as I was told that Alana and three of her friends went to a popular waterfall on a day off, and while they were taking pictures at the base of this waterfall, a torrent of water, which was the result of a flash flood up, uphill, came down upon Alana and her friend Hannah Showalker. The two girls were swept downstream. Hannah's body was found pretty much right away, but Alana's body was still not found. And so in the back of my mind, when I heard this news, I had hope. There's still a chance. I remember I hung up the phone, I began to pray, and I began to pray, you know, God, would you just show up? God, if there was ever time that you needed to do a miracle, it was now. Because no news was good news as far as I was concerned. I was trying to be that eternal op optimist, having that hope and that faith, and I prayed and I pleaded that God would intervene. After all, Atlanta was there. You called her God, right? She's doing your work. And then the other phone call came. The one that the, said that they eventually found Alana's body downstream. And the series of events that passed after that were actually too numerous really to talk about here today. But I, things like my phone call with her father, being at the airport watching the parents receive their daughter, dealing with the media, planning a funeral. But I have to admit, the moment that really messed me up the most is when I was told I had to stand in front of the congregation and inform everybody of her passing away and when the funeral was to take place. And so, uh, again, I remember that. It was foggy, but, you know, you remember some clear things. And I walked in that Sunday with my family. We sat in the front like we always did, but I, I was in a different world. I was dazed. I was confused. 
I was trying to figure out what was happening. And I sat down and I began to listen to the music. The music was upbeat. And then it happened. The music pastor, Sean, he, he began to sing a song that actually threw me for such a loop. Like it, just, it just threw me. It was, it was almost like it smacked me in the face. And the lyrics went like this. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name where when I'm found in the desert place though I walk through the wilderness. And I remember saying, God, that's exactly where I'm at. And the song goes on. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise when the darkness closes in, Lord. Still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your glorious name. When the sun is shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. And yeah, sure, yeah, God, things are good when life is good. I get it. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. And, and I remember just, just having this rage argument, although nobody really knew what was going on in my head, but God, this is where I am now. Song goes on and says, Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be your name, blessed be your name, blessed be the name, your glorious name. And then it happened as Sean began to sing, You give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. I lost it. Uh, unglued would be a great phrase there. And I remember yelling at God in my head, of course, as I sat in my pew, because I couldn't stand. That, God, I have a problem. I can't sing this song. I, I don't see eye to eye with you here. And here I am in church on a Sunday morning with my family around me, and I'm arguing with God what has happened, and I find myself torn because of the theological truths that I agree with, but I can't reconcile with what has happened in real life. I was in a moment of crisis. And, and to be honest, my faith was failing at that moment with all the bad things that, that go on in our society, the shootings, the stabbings, the abuse, the famine, the war, the list goes on, it can be hard for one to believe that God is with us, that he's involved in the midst of the accidental deaths of these two wonderful young women, and in my head I'm letting God know what I think, that he really messed up and somebody needed to inform him of this. On a side note, it's because of these two young women that we hold a golf tournament every year in honor of their memory. All the proceeds from our golf tournament, it's called Driving to Build Dreams. You hear us talking about it all the time. It goes to a fund that is called All Hands Held uh, that provides scholarships and bursaries to selected students in Indonesia. 
It provides financial support for a school for children living with disabilities in Kenya. It provides financial support for a home to help at-risk youth in Brazil. And a portion of it goes to the Living Word Temple to the inner city of Winnipeg to help deal with youth and young people there. The work of these two girls continues on. There was another struggle that happened in our lives. In 2009, Sharon and Sharon found out she was expecting again. This was to be our fifth child. Honestly, I was so excited. I, I always was praying that if we were to have another child, that it would be a girl. I was, honestly, that was my prayer. I'm just being transparent today. I was pumped when she said she was pregnant. And, and, and honestly, my first thought was, this was God actually answering my prayer. Now, because of our age at that time, we kept the pregnancy secret, and Sharon underwent a number of tests, and each test that she went came back with new bad news. I remember we were first told that the baby had Down syndrome. Then the next test, we were told the baby would have spina bifida. At one point, I remember we were actually encouraged to have an abortion. You know, our world was being rocked. And it was a very difficult time. It was a very difficult time for both of us as we held the course to have this little gaffer. Now, Sharon has her own version of the story, and you can talk to her about that. But I actually felt, I kid you not, I felt that this was a blessing from God. And I felt that this would be this baby girl that I've always prayed for, that this was going to be an answer to my prayer, and nothing was going to stop me from enjoying this. My heart was set. Nothing was going to deter us from this experience. And yet we eventually had to keep going for more and more tests. And then eventually we were actually told that everything was fine with the baby. You've got to be kidding me. There was no Down syndrome. There was no spina bifida. Everything was proceeding, and I quote, as normal. You know, again, that was a, an absolute relief. The, the ups and downs were so high and so low. And then just as we announced that Sharon was expecting, only because she couldn't hide being pregnant any longer, it happened. Unexplained. No reason why. Our baby died. It's a day I'll never forget. And these feelings and these memories don't go away. And I feel them as much today as I did then. And a tear comes to my eyes as I stand in an empty room talking to a camera. I held that little body.
we named him, go figure, Josiah. Emotions, obviously, are still real. Told my wife when I was prepping that I was going here. And a week ago, Friday, I was in my office by myself, researching and experiencing and reliving the emotion and the feeling. And after we lost Josiah, I grieved and I struggled with God. Maybe this is not what you want to hear from your pastor. I always had the understanding that most people presume that you want a man of God who is a rock in their faith, who has it all together, who has all the right answers and the perfect verse for every situation. But I didn't. As a matter of fact, I was undone. And after all the crap that we went through just to be told that we were fine, that the baby was fine, and then this, like, wow. And disappointment does not adequately describe what was going on in my mind. And at one point I even considered, because I was so discouraged, I was just ready to resign my position here as pastor at Soul Sanctuary. Just didn't feel that I could actually come and stand honestly in front of people. Now hear me out loud and clear. I am sold out to the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that he came so that we can have a fulfilled life, life more abundantly. I have my faith in God, I have my trust in God, but at times I struggle. I've wrestled, I doubt, I even became disillusioned. And maybe you wonder what I mean when I say disillusion. I'm talking about having certain negative realities discourage you and bring you down. That disenchant you with your faith. You know, really what I'm talking about is being turned off of God and being disappointed with Him due to certain factors or circumstances happening in your life. And what... You ask the question, you know, what are some of the things that that cause people to see their faith fail? And it's amazing how easily something as simple as hypocrisy can, can really completely turn somebody off. The sad fact is that there are a lot of hypocrites around, right? The church is not full of them because there's always room for one more. (laughs) It's a joke, right? But nobody is perfect, right? We all make mistakes. But what I'm talking about are there certain people who claim to be Christians, who claim to hold the Christian values, but whose lifestyle is so far from that. People who make all sorts of religious posts on social media, but would never ever consider modifying their own personal behavior to match those posts, if you get what I'm saying. You know, somebody once said that the greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny them by their lifestyle. And what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You know, these people treat others with contempt. Their actions are very different from their words, and these people are false representatives of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's a terrible thing when people look to these hypocrites as an example of what it means to be a Christian 
And maybe you grew up in a home with a hypocritical family member. Or you had close friends who lived this double life that made you question them and even your own faith. And sometimes it's not so much that people are turned off from God as that they feel that, you know, God can never love me. They just see themselves as losers, if I could put it ever so bluntly. They just feel like they're just not good enough or they, they just don't measure up here in our Western culture. You know, and, and some are taught in our culture, obviously, that God loves us and he gives us stuff. And he gives us our way. And when God doesn't deliver, we are failures, right? And we blame him. And yet God, with God, the point is that, that no failure is final. You know, whether it's caused by sin or inability or by other factors, you know, we, we do not allow any past failure in your life to put you down for the count. Because if you think of it this way, if we gave up and decided we weren't good enough every time we fell down, none of us would have ever learned to walk. But a lot of our feelings of failing faith come to us also in the form of past hurts, it's quite possible that you know but someone who got hurt by, by someone in the church in one way or another. I don't think I need to go into all the detail other than to say that there are people who feel hurt, and feel hurt and betrayed. And they have allowed those instances to affect them to the point that today God doesn't have any significant place in their life. A number of people doubt God when it comes to suffering in our world. Right? How can a loving God allow such terrible things to happen in this world? How can he allow a teenager to blow himself up in the streets of the Middle East, killing innocent bystanders? How can he allow airplanes to be hijacked and flown into buildings? How can he allow people to be killed in China, India, Yemen, or Miramar? How can he allow... Have you ever walked through the children's hospital? How can God cause the innocent to suffer? You know what? Well, there's so many genuine questions that we have, and sometimes we just don't get the answers we want, and our faith begins to falter. Now, my head tells me to trust God. And again, I know He's in control of everything, but there have been times where I have struggled just to do that. But as I grow in my walk with God and I see my relationship with Jesus Christ is, is just that. It's a relationship and it's not a lifeless religion. My confidence and trust in Jesus has become better than what it was before and my doubts have become less. But I still don't understand everything. But I understand that God is in control of everything. At least I hope I do. And so I have to have this trust that he knows what he's doing, but there are times that I question it. And through my experience, what I've discovered is that there is a, a difference between believing in God and believing God. And let me explain. There's actually somebody I know who believes in airplanes, much like you. They have seen them, they have heard them, they believe in them. They don't deny the existence of the airplane. However, I kid you not, this person does not believe that if they get into the airplane that the plane will get them from point A to point B. 
Just saying, just throwing it out there. So this person actually chooses not to fly. And I heard this person say the proverbial, if God had wanted us to have wings, he would have given us wings. If he wanted us to fly, we would have wings, whatever, you know. Like I've never heard that phrase before, but this person honestly doesn't believe a huge steel tube can fly through the air with them in it. And so they refuse to fly. Now, for many people, the problem is, is that they believe in God. But they don't believe God. When you believe God, you realize that he is God, you trust him, and you know that he has your best interest in mind and that he has a purpose, he has a plan, he has a reason for everything, even when we don't understand it. But when you simply believe in God, I put it this way, that really doesn't mean squat. And it can actually lead to a failing faith. Because it's really not a big deal to believe in God. Because our, our culture has no problem acknowledging a higher power or whatever type of God with a small g is out there. Oh, whatever you want to be God, that's fine, right? I believe in God, that's God. God's in the trees, in the chicken. I've heard it all. So come on, like according to scriptures, like even the demons believe in God. But they don't believe God. <coughs> they don't believe that he's the king of kings. They don't believe that he's the Lord of lords. They don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And they don't surrender and they don't serve him with their life. And I would venture to say that, in, that some in the range of my voice may be in that boat today. Maybe you're watching or listening today and you believe in God, but when the rubber hits the road, you don't believe God for who he says he is. And I think this is the critical point. I like to think that there are three different types of stages from believing in God to moving to believing God. That first stage is, and is like a casual believer. I've affectionately called these people Christers, right? You know, people who show up at Christmas and Easter, like that's their time of church and faith, right? Because um, that's what Christians do at these high holy holidays. And maybe they might even say a prayer at Thanksgiving. They are the Jesus light people, right? Jesus and God are cool, but hey, just don't let it affect my lifestyle. And then we have what is known as the convenient believer. And these are the people who, who wave the Christian banner if it benefits them. You know, the people who put the Christian signs and symbols, and maybe that's you, you know, that's fine, on their businesses promo. Why? Because you want to attract Christians to your business. Maybe it works for them. Great, that's great. But what are we saying? That I only eat, you know, work with Christian people, I only eat at Christian restaurants, I only eat Christian food, I only listen to Christian music. And the convenient Christians are the ones who, who wave that Christian banner so that it will close the deal for them, if I can say it that way, you know, so that their Christianity can almost be used for personal gain. Did I just say that? Yeah, I did. Because basically these people are going to use God for their own benefit. And then there's the committed believer. And actually, the committed believer is what Jesus expects from you and me. 
And this, this aspect of commitment is when life ceases to be about me and my wants and my, my desires and, all, and it becomes all about him. The committed believer does not waver when others around him do. They, they're sold out for God and when things happen to them that they don't understand, they trust Christ, they're sold out to this thing called serving God. And so I ask the question, where are you at today? Because I look at myself and I have to ask the question as well. To me. Because as a pastor, I like to think that I'm a committed believer. Doing what I believe that God has called me to do. But as a committed Christ follower, and I can speak of where I've been, there are times that I still doubt and it bugs me. And here I am supposed to be leading and teaching people Scripture and, and at times I may feel my faith falter. But I thank God for the Bible because I believe that God speaks to us through the Scriptures. We go back the last four weeks and as I said last week, the problem is that many people want God to speak to them audibly and we have a God who wants to speak to us, but yet we expect him to miraculously appear. And many people, including myself, are, are tempted to blow through the reading of the Bible to simply check it off as our religious to-do list. Yes, I've done it, but for some, as we open the scriptures, it's, you know, we just do it so I can learn some Bible facts. And what we end up doing is we make our faith more like a game of trivial pursuit. And that's not what it's about. Try sitting there and praying, maybe, God, I just, I want to pursue you. I want to hear from you. Speak to me, God, through this book. You know what? And he will. You know, I, I'm aware of people in our community who, who don't believe. They, they wouldn't identify themselves as Christians. And, but I can't think of a better place for them to be than right in our community. And I think this is a great place for them, especially because they're at least acknowledging that they have questions. They have doubts. But it's just not enough just to ask, you know, if you're not willing to take the time and the effort to pursue the answers. The answers to the questions that you are asking. We need to remember in the New Testament... Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, didn't stop with just being honest with himself. He didn't stop with asking questions, which some people do, but rather Thomas searched for answers. And his search led him to Jesus. And as you look for answers, I, I believe that your search will lead you to Christ. I believe that when, when honest people search for God, he begins to reveal himself and he brings them to himself. Thomas wanted to see for himself Jesus' scars and being face to face with Jesus, the risen Savior. And I think faith grows when we seek the answers to the right questions. Listen, it's not enough to be honest and acknowledge doubt. We have to dig deeper. And many people have no interest in finding answers. And so all they simply do is continue just to ask the question. You know, as a pastor, I have many struggles. I struggle with things like injustice, with poverty, with sickness, 
I struggle when somebody takes their life. I struggle when I hear about drunk drivers getting into accidents and killing people and they walk away. I struggle when godly couples can't have kids and others so can easily abort a child. I struggle how random acts of violence kill good people. I struggle when good people die early and when evil people live a long life. I struggle when so-called godly people really mess up their lives with incredibly bad decisions. I struggle when innocent children get sick. I struggle when young girls get killed in a freak flash flood. And I struggle when little babies die for no reason. And it just doesn't seem fair to me. So I question God. I express my doubts. Sometimes I wonder if God even knows what he's doing. But I too have to pursue the answers to those questions. And I too have to go to the scriptures and find out things like God never claims to be fair. And I'm sort of glad for that because if God was fair, then I would get what I deserve and I'd be in a very bad place. And by the way, so would you because none of us lead a perfect life. There's no such thing where you can be so good that you're going to end up in heaven. There's, there's no such thing, right? It takes perfection. And Christ had to come along and he had to pay that price because of my sin. Fairness would say I deserve death, but God in his mercy and his grace, his grace, he paid the price for my sin in the shedding of his blood. And he is a God. He is not necessarily fair. And according to Psalm 103, we read, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And I say thank God for that. And what I found through my experiences was it led to a time of brokenness. At least it did for me. And I think that word is very scary to anybody who hears it, especially if you're a believer and you've, you've kind of been exposed to biblical nutrition of Scripture, if you know what I'm saying. You know, brokenness is one of those words that you wish that nobody would ever tell you that God is doing to you or, or you actually find out that he's the one actually doing it to you. I think many times in our life, we, we construct our lives, we build them for our own comforts, we design our lives with our own passions, we rig it for our own journey. But what happens when God comes in and says, that's not the same timeline that he's on? You know, we have to have, I've said this before, we have to have a theology of brokenness. And if we're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to walk in the implications of the gospel. And, and as you do that, you're going to have to be married to the understanding of the principle of brokenness. Let me explain it. Psalms 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Isn't that awesome? Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And what these passages are talking about is God likes people who are broken. So what does it mean to be broken? The word there says that he loves those who are brokenhearted. And it's interesting in the Hebrew mind what the heart meant. The heart meant your mind, your emotions, and your will. Your mind is where your value system is. Your emotion is where your passion is. And your will is what you actually act on based on your value system, based on those passions 
that come from that value system and the things that you actually do. The will is based on all those things. And so the Bible says to the psalmist that God likes people whose values are basically broken, whose passions are broken, and whose will is broken. A word that comes to mind is humility. And the word broken throughout Psalms can mean shattered, crushed, maimed, devoid of arrogance, wounded, contrite, injured, smashed, grieved, distressed, crippled, wrecked, demolished, fractured, handicapped, and disabled. And so this brokenness is based on the Scriptures. It's actually a spiritual state by which one is disarmed of one's self-dependence and pride, thereby leaving one disabled in a desperate need of help, making one open to what God wants to do in our lives. And God wants people that have been totally smashed of their own personal pursuits to pursue him. And sometimes we don't understand why we're being led through a desert life when maybe God is simply testing our hearts to see whether we're willing to fully trust him and to follow his ways despite our circumstances. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul again is writing to the church in the city of Corinth. Paul begins to educate them on God's kingdom economy when he begins to say, he says, listen, you know, let me give you the, the biblical and kingdom layout of what is actually, it means to be a believer who wants to be used by God. And in verse 7 of chapter 4 he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Okay, so we have this treasure in earthen vessels or in jars of clay. What does that mean? Because back in that time, there were several types of vessels, several types of jars. There were the golden ones that would have rubies or, or uh, diamonds and pearls all encrusted in them. There were silver vessels or bronze vessels. And then there was a clay vessel. Now the clay vessel was the common use, the everyday thing. They were easily disposable. They weren't worth much. They could break. That's not a big deal. You'd go out and buy a new one. And Paul likens this clay vessel to the believer. And basically what Paul is saying is, look, hey, we're worthless vessels. But we have this treasure inside. And it's kind of crazy that you would have a worthless vessel, but why in the world would you put something of value that great a value in it. I think the other question now, too, is, well, what's the treasure? And Paul says, as he walks through 2 Corinthians, and he begins to lay it out in chapter 3, he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so he says we have this, this treasure in earthen vessels, and this treasure is the glory of God. And so not only does God put power in the vessel, Paul also acknowledges that there's, there's pressure on the vessel. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.8. We are afflicted in every way. Does this sound familiar, people? But not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So pressure or the pressure of life is put on every vessel. Paul says we're afflicted in every way. 
The sense of this term means to be surrounded by the crowds, right? It has to do with something going wrong. You ever had a day where you just woke up and said, you know, something's not feeling right, and of course your, your hair blower's not working, or you dropped your makeup, or your toothbrush ain't working, or you got no toothbrush, or no toilet paper, the car doesn't start, the list goes on, and you know it's going to be a bad day. No toilet paper in the time of pandemic. Mm. Bad day. But God uniquely uses everything in our life. And just because we're in a fallen world doesn't mean that God is still not in control of this faulty world system. Our life is not our own. And some of us are saying, you know, I can relate to that. Well, okay, well then keep on living. Paul adds, we're afflicted in, in every way, but we're not crushed. Crushed here in, in this text just points to the fact that uh, that full pressure doesn't have a full effect on us. You feel it, but you're not crushed. And he says not only afflicted, but he says perplexed, but not driven to despair. And I think this is very interesting terminology because perplexed, but not despairing. Perplexed is where we'll go through something and it means I really don't know what's going on right now. You ever been there? It means you've just been taken by surprise and you're kind of confused or you're dismayed. Maybe it's because God has allowed something to happen to you and during that time you begin to ask God questions like, God, I thought we're in this together. Why are you letting this happen? You know, a perplexed person says, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but, uh, you know, we have a track record here. I'm trying to trust you. But unfortunately, some people actually fall into despair at this stage. And despair is the antonym to perplexity. Despair is when you lose hope. Despair is when you begin to back away from the people of God, when you begin to hate Christian terminology, when you don't want to hear what God has to say because you think that God is so foul because he's allowed this whatever to happen to you. And you think that he can't be good and he can't be merciful. This good and merciful God that maybe you were told about. God, you're supposed to be merciful. You're supposed to be good. Why are you letting this happen to me? Get to the point where it's like, God, you make me sick. And despair is, is, is like losing hope. And we have to understand that, that hope is actually one of the ingredients of faith. You know, faith is not just saying, hey, it can happen, hey, but it's actually believing that will actually happen. And when we lose hope, it's hard to have faith. And so what happens to the despairing person is that they begin to cringe at all the things of God because something happened in their world that was beyond their control, beyond their comprehension, and they find themselves more than just frustrated. Paul then says, persecuted but not forsaken. Persecution. I wish our society would get it right here in Western culture. Persecution means to experience hostility or harassment in order to drive you or me away from someone, someplace, or something. In this context, it's God. 
So one may be under an assault, but you're not alone. And the enemy will use persecution for one thing. God is going to use it for something completely different. The enemy attempts to use persecution to pull us away from God, but God will use it to pull us closer to himself. The enemy will use it to weaken our walk, whereas God will use it to actually strengthen our worship. The enemy will use it to cause us to sin, and yet God uses it and calls us to sanctification or more holiness. The enemy will use it to push us into a complacency where God will use it to bring us out of our comfort zone. And all of us need to be in a place where we're allowing the reality of God's work in our lives to impact us and to affect us. But what's powerful about this is that God has a simple statement between each one of these examples that Paul is throwing out there. Afflicted but not perplexed, but not persecuted, but not struck down, but not, but not. That's God's backstage pass to your soul. But not. Means that there are limitations on how much he'll allow to happen to us. But not. Ask Job. A song, if you didn't know, Blessed Be Your Name, comes out of the story of Job. And when you go back and you read the story of Job, Satan goes before God. He says, God, listen, I got all this power, but you got this guy out there. He's just enjoying life. He's chilling. He's kicking back. Let me get to him. And God says, okay. All that you know, he has is his possessions. That's yours, but don't touch his life. And so what does Satan do? He goes crazy on everything around Job. And scriptures tell us Job is still worshiping him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan goes back before God. He says, God, I want more access to him. You have a hedge of protection around him, but I bet if, if you let loose on him, he'll forget you, God. He's going to deny you. That's not a problem. God says, okay, you can touch him, but don't take his life. But not. But not is God's sovereign prerogative to strain out through his sovereign fingertips what gets to you and me. And some of us, many times we allow the hurt and the pain of our brokenness to actually overshadow the reality of God's love for us. One final observation. God pushes Jesus out of the vessel. Look at verse 10 in 2 Corinthians 4. Not only does God put power in the vessel, but God puts pressure on the vessel and pushes Jesus out of the vessel, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is in you. And Paul talks about the fact that in our lives we must be continuously in a state of brokenness. And what's so powerful about this is that God just doesn't break us up for fun. He breaks us up to build us up. 
And when we are broken by adversity, by opposition, by suffering, God's power is revealed and God's work is accomplished in a way that does not glorify the clay pots, but manifests God's surpassing power and glory. So where are you at today? Because time and time again, I, I have, my life has come to a place where I feel like I'm nothing but broken pieces. There's nothing of value for me. I, I have nothing to give anymore. And maybe you, that's you. Maybe you f- feel that you failed God miserably or that he's failed you. Do I get an amen or ouch on that one? Maybe you've said things or you've done things that have brought sorrow all around you. Maybe you felt like you're going down and you're drowning in the depths of sorrow. For me, it's in those dark times when Jesus comes and he makes me whole again. Where he forms me into a better vessel than before and the process begins all over again. And little by little and day by day and one broken piece at a time, he's bringing us to a better place, making you and I into a better you and I and creating a more useful vessel for his purposes. And when you think of it, when broken by hardships, by disappointments and tragedy, people can become disappointed and bitter. But when mended by a hand of infinite patience and love, that finished product will be the work of exquisite beauty and effectiveness in a life that could only reach its fullest potential after it was broken. This week I stumbled on Jeremiah 3.8 and it's an interesting passage because it actually describes God experiencing pain that many people in our society can relate to. God went through a divorce. Think about that for a minute. Turn to Jeremiah 3, 8. We read God speaking, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. And yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. What we see here. Jeremiah is talking to the people and he says, look at God divorce Israel. Think about that for a moment. She was unfaithful to him. Think about the pain that God went through in this process. God knows what we're going through. You may be sitting there going, Jerry, my kids never turned out. Well, neither did his when you think about it. The greatest parent who ever breathed the breath and his kids, what did they do? They rebelled. But understand that It's your very brokenness. It's where you find yourself right now that attracts him to you. And that is what the cross was and is. The supersonic vacuum cleaner sucking up the failures of humanity, exchanging all of our brokenness and our sin for what? For his righteousness. You can't beat that. And here we have a God who's laid down his very life for us, knowing that we were broken, knowing that we are sinners, knowing that we will go through life with many disappointments, broken homes, broken families, broken lies, and broken dreams. And sometimes it's hard to see the hand of God working. Jeremiah 18 talks about the potter's house and that God is the potter and we are the clay. 
And we can only feel the pressure that brings about the, the reshaping and the changing that has to come. And we can have this sense of spinning around in circles, right? And we don't seem to be going anywhere. And some, sometimes that's how we describe our lives. And we feel the pain of change, right? As we're thrown down, sometimes hard, time and time again on the part of wheel. And we know that something is happening, but we maybe we don't know what. And we know we're changing and that the, there are forces beyond our control that are shaping us into something that, that we are more than what we are right now. But in all of this, all we can do is have faith. Faith in the fact that the potter knows what he's doing and that somehow all things work out for good just as he promised. So are you facing some tough times in your life right now? Do you feel that you've been broken? Do you feel that you've been shattered? Do you feel that you've been left for dead? Do you ever wonder if there's any hope or for a better tomorrow? Is there hope in your life? I hope there is. <laughs> As found in surrendering your life to Christ and allowing Him to live in you. Somebody once said this. They said, the beauty of, is that God spreads grace like a four-year-old spreads peanut butter. <laughs> he gets it over everything. I think doubt, questioning, all that is an inevitable part of our humanity. It can steal our victories before we've had any time to enjoy them. It can rob us of our sense of self-worth. It can attack us even on our best days, and it can pummel us into a dark corner on our worst ones. But Christ wants us to walk confidently through life, not to be paralyzed by doubt. And He is our strength when we are weak. He is our rock when we feel the avalanche of worry and anxiety in our lives. The world is pushing us in all directions with every kind of threat. But our great God is more powerful than your doubt. And when we submit our doubts to him, we remind ourselves of who he is and who we are in him. And through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to accomplish his will for our lives. People, the journey's not easy or pain-free, but it is possible. Let's pray. Father, life can be crushing. And we not only suffer the consequences of our own bad choices, but the outside circumstances of this fallen world have effects on us. Suffering and injustice are getting more prevalent by the day, and so whether we face adversity from people in our lives or the pressures from within or our own motivations, we can trust and find relief in you. Nothing surprises you, God, and I'm amazed at how great you are and able to meet us in our doubt, in our fear, and when our faith falters. To honor our questions about you and the purpose of it all. You have counted our days. You've knit us together in our mother's womb. You are always present. So, Father, 
no matter the time of day or the threat at hand, you are ever so close to us. May we be reminded of that, that you are constantly ready with a compassionate ear and a faithful promise to guide us in truth. You assure us that we will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. God, my prayer is that you would rescue us from the world, from calamity, and from others. And most of all, God, rescue us from ourselves. Our own minds can spin a web full of fear, so clear our minds, our souls, and our heart to experience your presence and to see through a tint of your perspective, God. Heal our doubts. Replace lies with truth. And bless our lives to honor and glorify you, I pray. Amen. So, sanctuary, when you're tired, may you find rest. When you feel burdened, may you know lightness. When you're lonely, may you be vulnerable. And where there is need for mercy, may you be mercy. Where there is need for love, may you be love. May God be at your side even in the valleys of wilderness and death. May the resurrection of Jesus be the cornerstone for your life through all seasons. And may the Holy Spirit abide and tend you with love, mercy, and mercy all the days of your life. Finally, may you be peace, hope, and joy to yourself, to your neighbor, and to our community. And finally, Soul Sanctuary, may you shine the love of God in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now go and live the church, and we'll see you next week.